You're you're so smart, human John, and and charismatic too. <laughs> you know it, Robo Nick. Ah, oh, man. It's so nice to have someone who actually listens and understands me in a way only an unimaginative yes-man can. I really feel like we've bonded in these last few days. Not like human Nick. Can can you believe that guy tried to compare Mega Man 2 to the Iraq War? I know, right? (laughs) What a rube. What a cad. What a putz. What a meatbag used for harvesting for our unspeakable interdimensional warlords. Our, our what? Human Nick was a doofus. <laughs> you got that right, Robo Nick. Well, are you ready to do the podcast? Yes, human John. Let us record the greatest podcast ever. The Literate Pixel Podcast, where we talk brooding bards and teenage angst. I'm your host, John, and with me is my ever hetero life mate, Robo Nick. Hello. Did you... did you hear that? All I heard was the dulcet tones of your intellectual voice box, human John. Ah, well then. Today we are going to be reviewing The Bard's Tale, Castle of Deception by Mercedes Lackey and Josepha Sherman in 1992 and published by Bain Books. But before we start, let's get into some ad copy. This week's podcast is brought to you by Master Aiden's Loot and Loot Adjacent Emporium. Do you need a lute, a guitar, a lyre, a mandolin, or any other stringed instrument? Then Master Aiden's Loot and Loot Adjacent Emporium is the place to be. Need to dazzle the lads and lasses with musical sass and magic? Then take Master Aiden's three-week course on loot wooing. Entrance the pants off anyone you like with the power of your primordial musical prowess and get yourself a loot and loot adjacent instrument today. Trade your loot for a loot at Master Aiden's Loot and Loot Adjacent Emporium. With that out of the way, let's talk a bit about the book. The Bard's Tale Castle of Deception is an epic fantasy novel that weaves a wistful tale of Kevin the Bardlet, who pines for life outside of his podunk rural village and away from his doting master who battled and defeated a great evil long ago, but now sits behind piles of books. Kevin is asked by his master to go to the castle of Count Volmar and transcribe a scroll in secrecy and return with a copy in hand to his master post-haste. What results is a story of intrigue, kidnapping, and adventure as Kevin teams up with a ragtag group of Avengers including Lydia, the human warrior, Tiki, the rogue fairy, Eliathanus, the white elf paladin, and Itakal, the dark elf necromancer. Together, the team reveals a dastardly plot to overthrow the king and devise a plan to stop it. Nick, what did you think of this book? I mean, whatever you thought, human child. <laughs> but other than that, I, I, yes. I actually I, I found it quite enjoyable. 
Uh, and I, I can't tell if that's just because we've had sort of a string of mediocre to bad ones. Real bad ones, Nick. Yeah, but this this was a strong book in that it, it's not original, but it does a lot of really interesting things. And I, I think this book is a testament to why we need more diversity in authors and authorship, why we need to invest in more women authors, more authors of color, because she plays around, in fact, with a lot of tropes that, you know, we have found written by men that are rather uncomfortable, but as dealt and handled by her are actually done in like a rather mature and interesting way. I think Bard's Tale is a really strong book with, even though not a terribly original plot, uh, interesting aspects to it. It plays on certain tropes of the fantasy genre. Uh, That's really interesting. And uh, this is something that I found really uh, cool about Mercedes Lackey's writing in general. I've read uh, some of her Valdemar series, the first two books. Uh, So the queen's arrows and something else involving arrows they all involve arrows Ooh, arrows abound arrows abound where like there's uh spoilers uh for this uh anyway uh there's interesting things like uh magical dust that's a contraceptive and like ooh, yeah no it was a really cool book because i'm like ah, oh, it's this goofy book where you know a girl uh becomes a companion with a a sentient horse and i had that instinctual sort of male you know dismissiveness of uh things that are you know categorized for young girls and women but it it really surprised me and and, uh it made me reflect on my attitudes towards literature aimed at uh young girls um and it's both in its maturity and its handling of queer characters uh, she has a series that I haven't read called Serrated, which is uh, a urban fantasy uh, book uh, series uh, based on uh, race car driving elves. Ooh, I like this. So there's that. I've read Bedlam's Bard, which has no relationship uh, to uh, Bard's Tale, uh, but that's also a, uh, a urban fantasy series. Uh, with a magical bard living in California. And all of them, uh, in that book, you have a polyamorous bisexual relationship. Like, it's just, like, it's really cool. Yeah, like, she just handles a lot of topics of sexuality, of uh, representation, in a very mature and interesting way, in, in ways that I think have been neglected so far in the books that we've read. So I, I think that this is a solid entry in the Mercedes Lackey canon, even though I wouldn't necessarily suggest it over other Mercedes Lackey books. Okay. Uh, what did you think, John? So, yeah, I, I also, like you, like you, I enjoyed the book, but uh, I felt that it had great characterization. You had this, this main character, uh, Kevin, the Bardlet, who is this teenage boy. He's like 16 at the time, I believe. Mm-hmm. And he very much encapsulates that teenage boy world of, of feeling like they're an adult, even though they're very naive about the world. They also think that they can do everything, but clearly they can't do much of anything. And this frustration of thinking that everybody's judging him or perceiving him as being lacking and, and ill-fitted for the job and, and having to come to terms with his own um, insecurities and these sorts of things that are very much encapsulate a, the teenage experience and i thought that she did a really great job of, of doing that with this protagonist but not only that they were able to give him a great character arc where he starts to get into his his role as a hero and start to better understand 
the world himself and and coming to tackle his insecurities and having the self-confidence to be able to uh, achieve his goal in general and be able to rely on people and, and be a leader by uh, you know dividing up uh, people's you know abilities and using them to their full advantage really starting to understand uh, personal interpersonal relationships I thought that was really quite good at doing that but what i enjoyed about the book really great was unlike other books like the rogues hour um, and stuff like this the book got to the point right away in the first like five pages of the book we instantaneously set the tone of what the plot is you know he's a bartlett under the training of this really awesome you know heroic bard from history days past and he's tasked with getting the scroll right out the gate we immediately know, one, he's sick and tired of being in this small country town. We learn that he has always been considered gifted, but he hasn't been able to tap into bardic magic. And, and so he's frustrated that he hasn't, you know, hit that stage where he can become a fully fledged bard. But he blames other people for that shortcoming. You know, he blames his master for not teaching him right or, you know, other people not encouraging him and giving him the support he needs. Uh, and all of these sorts of things that, that lead him to resent people and believe that he could do it on his own when he can't. And, of course, this arc all throughout the book, when he starts to rely on others, he starts to better understand himself, and he's able to achieve that goal that he wants to do. So I like that character in general. I, I, I didn't like him at first because he's a whiny teenage boy, but that's the point. His point in this book is to be that whiny teenage boy. So I really felt that she did a great job of, of changing him over time. You know, he wasn't a mean-spirited person, but he was just this resentful kid. Um, and how you mentioned previously the fantasy tropes being turned on their sides. You know, the, the necromancer Nighthawkle, he's this dark elf necromancer. So you would think he's this dark and sinister person. And he's not that at all. He's a very, a very human, uh, not really human, but you know what I mean, a very realistic uh, person. Mm -hmm. And he has these emotions and these feelings and this the preconceived notions of what he's supposed to be versus what he really is and she does a really good job of playing with characters in that way yeah and if, if you don't mind my interjection yeah uh what uh, along that line something that i really like about the book is that and i think all of mercedes lackey's books is that while there is some violence and fighting uh the emphasis uh, the way you succeed isn't in direct physical confrontation uh most of her characters succeed through song through companionship through love um with a little violence intermixed and, and that's something that i find you know really cool that there's something other than just killing the the bad guy a hundred percent and we'll get into this a little bit more in the spoiler zone but with, with nitakal in particular uh he's one of the most interesting characters in the whole book Mm -hmm. uh, because he's meant to be or expected to be some evil and dangerous and conniving person not to be trusted in these sorts of things but he's actually the most um, sensitive and the most exposed character he's, he's the one who has a lot of uh, insecurities himself uh, about himself and his emotions and coming to terms with with letting himself feel and embracing this other aspect of him that his culture and society didn't didn't accept but uh also it very much plays with the trope that all dark elves are evil they're all bad guys you know and this yeah. character is very clearly showing that um there were 
culturally raising people to be spiteful and embrace the dark arts and, and the death and, and destruction, but doesn't always mean that those characters, those people in that world have to be that. Yeah. Uh, they don't have to be these tropes. It, it's a, it's a nurture thing versus a nature that sometimes you can do and believe crappy things, not because it is inherent to your biology, but it is a part of the way you were raised. Yeah. But there's one major problem I had with the book and and this is a big one, not necessarily for critiquing it as a book, but for this podcast in particular. You know, we are a podcast where we talk about books based off of video games. And this book in particular has zero things to do with the Bard's Tale. <laughs> it, it even says on the cover that it is like, you know, set in the world of Bard's Tale. It is not. It is not remotely. Um Bard's Tale is a game from the mid-1980s, right? It is a first-person dungeon-crawling computer RPG where you form a party, and they all have different classes, and, and the bard can do magic. There's the similarities, right? It ends there. Uh, the Bard's Tale, the game, has a major emphasis on kind of Gaelic folklore and um, has a much more witty and, and light-hearted world that they craft. You know, there's... References to things like Monty Python's Holy Grail. It's very cheeky. And if anyone were to have a good like frame of reference, it's somewhat similar to games like uh, the Might and Magic series, if they've ever played those. It's, uh, but it's a very enjoyable game. But there's the spells that they cast in this book are not spells that you cast in this game. The, the towns, nothing in the game. The races that are referenced and, and used in the book nowhere to be found in the game there's nothing in the book's world building that reflects the world building in the game itself this is a typical kind of fantasy pulp adventure and well crafted i would say um but it has just the name and yeah. for me that's like th i'm gonna be really honest this was the hardest read for me out of all of the books that we have read, harder than Rogue's Hour, harder than Laura Croft, even though I enjoyed the book probably the most out of all of the books that I've read. I enjoyed it more than all of them, but it was a hard read for me because it didn't have that novelty. There was nothing that was driving me to continue to read it because it didn't have that hook that, based on a video game, I'm more driven by wanting to see those similarities. I'm more driven by wanting to see what what uh, stuff they, they do to play with those you know, pre-established worlds. I, I want to know that stuff. I want to just see how silly things get, like in Mega Man 2, or like how do you make a novelization of Bases Loaded 2. You know, that sort of thing. Here, there's nothing to work with. I was just reading a fantasy novel. And yeah. so it was so hard for me because I wanted to have uh, something that had that, that more playful nature, more comical and wild nature of the Bardstale computer game. And I didn't get that. It, there's no comparisons. I don't know. I don't know. It was just not, not for me. I, I enjoyed the book a lot. I would recommend this book if somebody wanted to have an entertaining, you know, fantasy uh, little adventure romp. I would say, yeah, this, it was an enjoyable book. I, I had fun. I liked the characters. I liked all the, the, the writing and prose. I don't know, but it was not a good video game book. If people who were like, I want to follow along with the podcast and read books based off of video games, 
I wouldn't recommend that for people because there's nothing there. What about you, Nick? Would you recommend this? Uh, so I have complicated feelings about that. I, I think, so it's a strong, uh, especially of the pool of books we have. It, it is uh, above and beyond a lot of the things we've had and things that I've been recommended so far. But the reason I have complicated feelings, uh, so yes, I, I think that if you want to read something that is mercifully short, it's only 266 pages, so it's not going to stick around for terribly long. So if you're looking for something that isn't terribly taxing um, mentally, uh, but does some interesting things with fantasy tropes, but is mostly just generic fantasy, I think this book is fine. I think other Mercedes Lackey books are more interesting. I think the Bedlam's Bard series is really cool. The Valdemar series, where you have the young girl with the sentient magical horse, is actually pretty excellent, even though the first book is a little expository for my taste. But she's got a lot of better books out there that I think you should pick up first. And if you manage to get through those, uh, then maybe come around here. But even then, I'm like, but you could be reading Brandon Sanderson or like, there's so many like really cool fantasy since like the mid to late 2000s has really taken an awesome turn that it wasn't really having in the like early to late 80s and uh, 90s. So it, it, it it's a very timid yes. Okay. Well, I have a question for you then. I mean, in comparison to all of the books that we've read, how would you feel that this book stacks up in comparison to everybody else? In a scale of Rogue's Hour to 10, what would you give this book? I don't recall if I've ever given a 6 before. I think I have. So I think I have to give this a 7 because I've skewed my own scale. I think you've given something a 7 before, though. No, no, no. I gave a 7. You gave uh, Zorik a 6, and I gave Zorik a 7. Yeah, I... So I think this is a seven, which I mean, so like we don't consider a five bad on this podcast. No. A five is average. So seven yeah. would imply that it is above average. And I think that is true yeah. of video game books of this era. <laughs> I think it is above average. Now, now here's my take, Nick. Here's the thing. Sit with me, okay? Listen. Mm-hmm. This book in particular is disqualified. I don't think that this book in particular should be ranked. I know. I don't think this book in particular should be considered uh, ranked and rated within the pantheon of books that we will be discussing throughout the entirety of this podcast. It has the the name Bard's Tale. It would be, uh, a comparative would be Mm -hmm. reading a book called Halo, The Rise of Master Chief, and it being a book about angels watching over generals in world war ii well question in the in this fictitious book of angels watching over soldiers in uh world war ii is there a soldier played by danny glover (laughs) (laughs) yeah yes yeah of course okay wait no no this is a different we're we're doing a different podcast now because this i i'm intrigued by this (laughs) screenplay we're writing all right i mean look halo the rise of master chief is really about these angels right that are are watching this battlefield play out nick okay and they notice the uh the the death of a particular soldier he's the master chief at the time and they see his spirit rise up and this is a journey through the variety of you know 
underworld denizens to overcome them using his battle spirit and the angels guiding him through that process yeah. so that he can be resurrected once again and to uh you know overcome the the nazis of world war Two and mm-hmm. become victorious war heroes uh my one request is that when we end it uh it fades to black and then in white letters it pops uh text pops up that says so why didn't the angels just stop the Holocaust in the first place? Oh. Yeah, it's a thing. There's the major major conundrum there that we have to ask ourselves. We have to I mean we're we're now talking about the relationship between heaven and earth. It's yeah, that <laughs> we're we're going to have to put a lid on that. Yep, trademark Literary Pixel Podcast LLC. Don't don't do it. Don't steal it. Uh <laughs> so I disqualifying it i have complicated feelings about i don't begrudge you that uh we're a podcast as you know about are we are indeed uh there isn't a visual component oh god you could see me picking my nose no i've been watching you this whole time nick ah god i have to scratch my balls and here we are stop pouring your booze down your pants please it's embarrassing (laughs) it is i've been drinking a lot i can't keep it in the cup anymore (laughs) uh but uh the the reason i have complicated feelings about it is because this is i think that uh the last two books we reviewed this and amulet of power illustrate something that i think this era and even rogues hour like the late uh, the late 90 the early 90s to like the early 2000s this last decade of books they ain't got a lot to do with their source material like, I, I, I think Rogue's Hour is doing something that's a little more in the world, even though it's still pretty much, like, why the hell am I reading this? There's a lot of, uh, of leniency in that. They take a lot of different takes that, that very much deviate from the, the world of EverQuest, although it may be more interesting. It still was a lot of different stuff. And I think you're absolutely right, because when we look at something maybe from, like, the, the 1980s, and we'll have to read these at some point. Have to read them? I want to read them. Yeah, that that are direct adaptations of the games like uh, Planetfall and Zork and those sorts of things. They're supposed they're supposed to be direct adaptations. I'm very curious to see what those books look like in comparison to stuff like the Amulet of Power, the Bard's Tale. Now it was 1993. The Bard's Tale came out like 1980, like five, 1986, like those times. So like almost a full decade had gone by at that point before they these novelizations came out and no other game in that series came out until a decade later so i don't know necessarily what they were pushing at that point there were three games in the series before this book came out all released in the 1980s nothing came out again until a reimagining in the early 2000s for the playstation 2 like i don't know what they were trying to get from this you know, yeah. there's a series of books. There's a lot of them. There's like six. Yeah. Uh, so I would say that there's a clear disconnect between the the IP and the book. And I think that's just been true of books from this time period. And I think the exception has been the Zork books. Now, I mean, the worlds of power books, yes. I mean, but I, I have... I, does Mega Man really count? Mega Man is just a transcription of... Mega Man. The, the Mega Man no. World's Power book is just a transcription of that book with quip, uh, of it's that fantastic. video game with quippy one-liners. That is, yeah. somebody watched the video game and then wrote down what happens in it. Bases loaded too. Yes. They took the roster from the game. 
they took the actual roster of that team and the team names and the characters within those teams. They looked at the manual. They looked at the facets that made that book interesting. The weird, like, you know, uh, uh, computer graph that shows, like, the the skill upgrades and downgrades of, of characters throughout the season and interpreted that to be the computer system that their coach used. They took all these aspects of the game, twisted them, and turned them around to be something interesting and compelling. Here they didn't take anything except for yeah. bards can do magic, but that isn't an exclusively bard's tale thing. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's a thing in D and D. I the long form novels, there's been a clear disconnect. Like there, there's been a clear separation between uh, the the IP and the video game to a, le- a greater or lesser extent, depending on which book you're looking at. I think this is probably yeah. the most extreme example of it. Um, so I I don't. Uh, to get us back on topic, I don't necessarily begrudge you disqualifying it, even though I think I, I think we're going to see a lot more of this, especially in this time period. I, I'd be curious to see what happens when we move into like the late early 2000s to the 10s and you know the 2010s. Yeah, because yeah. uh, the there is a ser- a lot of books in the the 2010s and onward that are supposed to be direct novelizations uh and sticking very strictly to the events of the game and i'm very curious to know how those actually translate uh how well do they stick to it do they do so to a detriment of the book i'm 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 very curious to know how that's going to go so i I think this is an interesting example with like rogues hour and uh amulet of power uh there yes Oh, I, I think this is an excellent. Uh, these are excellent exemplar uh, exempla of, you know, how adaptation can sort of go off the rails when it's too loose, when it doesn't. Hold on, Nick. Did did you just call the word example exempla? Uh, that is the plural of exemplum from the Latin. Really? It, it you is could a... have just said example, an example. You did the plural of the Latin word. I, yes, indeed. I did. Look the at neuter, you. I did the neuter plural. Uh, I could double check real fast. William Whitaker. No, Whitaker. we do not need to double check I, if I you actually were it. correct in that. Oh, my God. I'm double checking, John. Exempla. Uh, exemplum, exempli. Example, sample, specimen, instance, precedent, case, warning, deterrent. Yes. No human in their right mind uses the Latin version of example People to say the word example. What? Yeah. What world do you live in? I, I, a weird one, to be frank. Oh, a very weird one, obviously. Yeah. I look forward to using this outtake for something. <laughs> no, it's not an outtake. It's staying in. This whole thing? Yeah. Now listen, Nick. We've talked a little bit about the book, what we liked about it, what we didn't. Should it be disqualified? In my book, it is disqualified. It is not, it's stricken from the record of, is this a book based off of a video game? It is not. But we're still going to talk about it. We still have to. (sighs) I'm going to plug you in, Robo Nick. Are you ready to plug in to the spoiler zone? Yes, I am. Human, John. Give me your dongle. Robo Nick. Here it is. It is quite thick. Here we go. We're gonna plug it in. (sighs) Spoiler. 
Uh, Nick! What are you doing here? I, I know exactly what I'm doing here. You've been tricked into recording with a robot version of me. And I'm here to save you. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, yes. How could I have been so foolish? Don't worry, John, old buddy. Everything's going to be okay. Uh, he was so lifelike. I, I just didn't, I didn't know. I, I'm, I'm glad you're back. I guess. It's okay. Well, well, John, since I was trapped within the spoiler zone for some time, I got to read up on the Bard's Tale. Shall we? <gasps> yes, we shall. Oh, real Nick, human Nick. How are you? I'm I'm okay. It's been a while. I have a whiskey. Oh, you have a whiskey. This is great. Mm -hmm. I like this. I didn't know that in the spoiler zone, it just is pouring whiskey from the sky. But it does that. Ooh, Ooh wow. I know, right? So you want to get it stuck in the spoiler zone all the time then, right? Maybe, potentially. <laughs> well, let's talk about the plot of The Bard's Tale. Okay, so the book starts with Kevin the Bardlet, who is this you know, young 16-year-old who is wanting to have adventure and strike out on his own to live these, mass, you know, magical tales that were told by many bards before him. But he is stuck under the tutelage of a master, Aiden. When he was young, uh, he had met a bard who had saw the potential in him and said, you can be something truly great and harness the power of bardic magic, but you need training. So she gave him to master Aiden to be uh, under his wing and what happens for Kevin is that he's stuck under a bunch of books, doesn't get to play very often. Master Aiden is researching constantly, very old, very sickly, in the middle backwaters of nowhere. And he, uh, so Kevin is always kind of stuck with wondering, like, when am I going to come upon my, my bardic powers. I don't have that ability. I can't tap into this magic. I can't do anything. And everybody is kind of holding me back, and I want to do something. And he's like, I, I came across this, like, hero bard, like, this super god bard, and now he's just, like, sitting in this tiny, tiny town, and I ain't doing nothing. He's so upset about it. It's very funny. Well, his master then... As soon as he finishes this thought, his master summons him and says, I need you to go to this castle of Count Volmar. He has a scroll in his library that I need you to transcribe. What I need you to do, though, is to keep this very secret. Do not tell anybody. Don't show anybody this scroll. Do not tell anybody what you are doing or let them handle any of this. You must do this all on your own and do it as quickly as possible and as perfectly as possible. And bring that back to me right away. He says, you're not going to do this alone. You have with uh, you this troop of performers that are going to escort you to the castle. Because it's too dangerous of a trek for a little boy to do this all on his own. And of course, Kevin is very, you know, like, I could do it. I don't need anybody. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a man. You know, very dumb, brooding teenage boy. So he goes on with this troop of performers led by Barack. This very charismatic, you know, very rambunctious person and they're making fun of Kevin. He gets annoyed by this and he decides I'm going to leave them 
and go on my own. I don't need them. They're so mean to me. And they, they make fun of me. And I'm a man. I'm, I can, I can, you know, I can survive in the wilderness. It's no big deal. Mind you, he's never been in the woods. In his life. Yeah. Never in his life. He, he has played loot in a small town and done chores until he was yep. like in his teens. Exactly. And so he goes off into the wilderness and he's cold. He's starving. He doesn't know how to start a fire or catch food. And in the middle of the night, he comes across a mischievous group of elves. This this is her. This is Mercedes Lackey uh, and uh, Josefa. They're they're really setting the stage of this world building, right? So they start. They introduce you to these elves. Uh, he gets beset upon by some elves who are laughing and raucous and uh, being somewhat aggressive without like threatening without being physically threatening you know like they're he doesn't kevin doesn't know what to think of them he doesn't know if they're going to attack him or play a trick on him that's going to harm him or put him to sleep or something truly mischievous elves aren't meant to be trusted elves are strange and ethereal creatures you know i don't know what to do about this and in reality those elves are telling him that he is a brooding silly teenager and that he needs to understand the world. He doesn't have this concept of the world. He can't do this all on his own. He should listen to his elders. He should pay attention to what other people say and take these th- lessons to heart. Um, they they offer him bread, give him some tips on how to survive in the world. And Kevin, of course, I, I don't need your help. I know what to do. And he doesn't do or listen to what they say. He is selfish and, and silly. Yeah. And this is actually, I think, the beginning of where uh, Mercedes Lackey starts to show that she is going to play around with some of uh, the classic fantasy tropes um, established, especially in things like D&D, but also in Tolkien, where you have like this uh, racism, to be frank, uh, of, you know, you have the elves, which are these inherently mystical, inherently fey, weird things. Um, and she presents them in that way here. But later in the book, they are more down-to-earth, more human, um, and a lot of the book is overcoming that uh, stereotyping, uh, which I find really interesting. I think what happens here in this instance is that uh, what is really happening is it's Kevin's projection of what he thinks they are. You know, he constantly refers to them as, as being, like, threatening and mischievous, and in reality, they're trying to help him out. And But to him, he's like, I don't know what to expect. I can't trust them. I don't know, you know, they could put a blade on me in a moment's notice. You know, I don't know what to do. And they're not in any way actually being threatening. It's just this little boy's perception of the world within which he has no clue how it works. It's a very, like, interestingly racialized uh, perspective. on it. Like, it, yeah. you can envision... Um, how you know people treat certain groups today walking down the street and how they're suspicious of their intentions uh despite the fact that they're not even thinking about them they don't they have their own lives uh the same thing is happening here the same thing happens later on in the book when we have the group uh you realize that uh, you know people are people man it, you, sapient beings are sapient beings uh, and I, I like, I really like that she explores that. All of the racial tropes that get set in this book are quickly broken. And the whole point of it is to say that these characters perceive these things and, and treat people based on those perceptions. And they quickly realize the error 
of that. She very heavily emphasizes this sorts of thing with all of the characters that are quote unquote different than, you know, Kevin, the protagonist. He gets to the castle, right? And he uh, is, you know, sequestered off with the with the squires um, under the, the tutelage of the knights and stuff like this. And he has to listen to them be raucous boys who wrestle and, and tussle. And again, him being that, that, you know, morose kid, he sees that and he's like, they're so much lesser than me. I'm going to be a bard. I'm going to be able to wield magic. All they do is like to roughhouse and are stupid. You know, they're, they're imbeciles compared to me. And like, for me, I was like, she is getting the teenage thing right now. She's really tapped into this wonderfully because he's wrong. Obviously they're just teenage boys, just like him, but they are, you know, more f about the physicality of things. And so he kind of is mean to those, those other boys and they are in turn mean back because he's just sitting there in the corner, like looking at him, like it just staring at him being like, you're so stupid. <laughs> like, come on. But he goes on to meet with the Count, who is disinterested in, with him, and and sends him off to uh, meet with his uh, his assistant, the the guy who works all the administrations. This this bug man, who is a, he's an insectoid. Yeah, he's uh, the official race is the Arachnia. The Arachnia, no. and again, this is another instance where Kevin has never seen an Arachnia before, and the administrator is like ask your stupid questions like get your staring done ask me whatever you want about my people you've ever clearly never seen anything about us i want to dispel your preconceived notions and you know again being like look i know you don't you perceive me as being some weird creepy bug person but i'm not talk to me about it you know uh and sends kevin off to the library Kevin uh, finds the scroll he's looking for. It is, and he feels something awaken inside of him a little bit. This, this spark, this feeling, and the scroll seems to kind of come to life. He starts to see aspects of it he couldn't see before. These glyphs and notations that are, are magical in nature, mm -hmm. and he begins to transcribe them. His first day of doing so, he gets some work done, and he sets it aside uh, in his loot case because he has to keep his loot close. But then we cut to an interlude, one of many interludes in this book. Uh, th this is something that's really interesting about the way Mercedes Lackey writes. I'm not confident that I always like it, uh, but she has this. Uh, and I, I think this might be one of the better examples of it, really, uh, where she likes to switch perspective quite a lot. And she doesn't do it so much here. The interludes are the place where she does it, where she switches from uh, the perspective of Kevin to Count Volmar, and uh, I think it's mostly Count Volmar. I think it's pretty much all his perspective. But in the Veldemar series in Bedlam's Bard, you would have a, a slight, not even a, a section break, uh, just of a couple lines, and then you'd be in someone else's head. Which, at first, I found very jarring, because I just thought it was a weird formatting error, and then I'm like, wait, who's who's thinking? <laughs> yeah who's thinking right now uh so, she really likes to explore the inner like lives of all of the characters and not uh exclusively have it come from the third person perspective of one yeah well in this instance she creates these interludes where we we cut to count volmar 
and he is meeting with somebody. <clears throat> we learn that it is Carlotta, the sorceress uh, princess, who attempted to murder the king and claim the throne as her own. She is not dead. She was in, in you know, resting to regain her power and ready to make her next move to, to destroy the kingdom and take it over. And Volmar is uh, related to her in like some way, right? Because she is the half-sister to the king. Yes. Yeah. And so he's helping her try to, to gain power. And so they're talking about Kevin the Bard, uh, Bardlet. What is he doing? Why is he here? What is this, you know, scroll that he's looking for? What would that do? They're about to enact some plans to take over the thing, and they're concerned uh, that whatever he's looking for will um, derail them, given that they know his master is Master Aiden. Yes, exactly. And so they devise this plan that uh, Carlotta is going to take on the guys of Count Volmar's niece. She's going to shapeshift. She's this powerful sorceress, does a lot of shapeshifting and illusions. Uh, she's going to take on the form of Count Volmar's niece, Karina. And she's going to woo Kevin and distract him. She's going to give him yet another magical feeling he hasn't felt before. Exactly. She's going <laughs> to uh, keep him from finishing his work on the scroll so that she can learn about what that scroll is and inevitably take it and 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 stop him so that the next day she enacts that plan she's you know enticing him and and flirting with him heavily and and kevin of course being the 16 year old boy who's never had any life experience and also has never been flirted with before like he lived in a podunk town where like all the women were of adult age she's like she touched his hand and his body responded. And oh, you yeah. No, he's popping a boner. You oh, know yeah. he's popping a boner. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of boner popping. So she is like, oh, let, what are you working on, you know? And he's like, oh, I'm not supposed to say. And she's like, oh, don't worry about it. Come show me your work. And so he goes into the library to show her. And they can't find the scroll. It has disappeared. And so he spends the whole day looking for it with her and nowhere to be found. And he's like, oh no, Like I'm so screwed. Like I messed up big time. I don't know what to do. And she's like, I know what to do. Why don't you come like riding with me in the countryside and have a picnic? And so cut to the most boring part of this book. <laughs> the power of boners, sir. It is quite strong. Look, on the boner meter, this is a schwing moment where he goes on, he goes on dates with her and she's just like, oh, you're the best. How many in a row? Like, 20. I don't even know. 37? Yeah, so many Kevin boners. Mm-hmm. They go on so many dates, and he's just like, you're the greatest thing. And she's like, oh, you're so sweet. I love you. And they like they kiss and all those germs, you know? Mind you, she is an adult. She is an adult, and he is a 16-year-old boy. Yep. And... He does not know this, that she is an adult. He is ignorant of that fact. And, like, that is... Like, 15, 20 pages of their dates. And they're, like, just conversation about, like, what do you do? And Kevin, you know, talking himself up. And it, it, it was kind of, uh, it was not good. It was, it was fine. But then we cut to another interlude. Count Volmar is talking with Carlotta, and she's like, I don't know where the hell this scroll is. I need him out of here. 
How do we get rid of him and make him go away so I can find the scroll and destroy it? And Conformer's like, I don't know. In his head, he's like, I'm terrified of Carlotta. I want to get rid of her, but I also want her to claim power. Yeah, I don't want her eye to be on me. I want mm-hmm. her to take over the throne. I want to have my rightful place. Beside her. Yeah, beside her, but not directly in the line of fire of her directly to the side not in front yeah exactly and so they devise this plan that they're going to stage the kidnapping of karina the the fake karina of course because in reality karina was killed <laughs> oh yeah count volmar pushed her off the 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 ramparts of the castle and she died in a shitter. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's terrible. <laughs> There's so much poop. But like, it, it, it just to step back a second. I I think this is why we spend a little too much time talking about how lovey-dovey they get, just to set up why he gives a crap. Like, it isn't strictly uh, because of some sense of chivalry, but uh, also through the power of boners that he wants to save Karina. Yeah. And so the next day. The, the Count summons him. The whole castle is ablaze with activity. And the Count's like, my niece Karina's been kidnapped by evil, mischievous elves. You know, clearly they're the culprits. They Racism. are never to be trusted. And Racism. They, they stole her in the night. Racism. I need you to sa- find her and save her. I've sent out many other people, but I need you. You are the one. She has been with you, and I, I will give you some people, some money, uh, a team of experts, and go. And naturally, being a 16-year-old boy, he agrees to this. Yeah, he's like, yes, I can do this. I'm a man. I've never led a war party before, or a search party, or any party, really. But I'm a man. I could do it. So he's teamed up with a ragtag group of adventurers. You have uh, Lydia, the barbarian archer. Tiki, the fairy. Uh, you have Nidicol, who is the dark elf necromancer, and you have El- uh, Elianthus, who is the white elf, high elf, whatever. Yeah, he's a, he's a paladin. He's a paladin, yeah. It, it's really interesting that there are two elves on this mission to go uh, find this woman. And actually, that's something that uh, they point out. They're both here because they uh, were blamed, their races were blamed, uh, for the kidnapping of Karina and they're like no that is crap we did not do that we hate each other but like you know that's something we'll get over in the next hundred pages or so Uh, (laughs) and uh, but we didn't do it and we're gonna prove that we're innocent this is not the sort of thing we do and and again there's this really interesting like you know the way people are perceived versus the reality of who they are and the way they act that she plays on now, Lydia, in particular, is doing this simply for the money. She's a wandering mercenary. She just simply wants to see the world, and this is an opportunity to have food. <laughs> like, that's it. But she's also a really great tracker. And in this moment, Eliathanus and Nedical are constantly at odds with each other. Eliathanus is like, Dark Elves are evil they are terrible there's they're the worst thing they are corruption personified and that mm-hmm. calls just like you are so insanely wrong 
you are so living on your high horse, you know, on this ivory tower, looking down on people. That is such a terrible uh, perception of things. I am different. I am not those people. I am not that concept. Uh, and you are being a horrible racist person. Kevin doesn't know what to do. They haven't even left the gates yet at this point, and he's very much like, I'm supposed to be the leader. Lydia is really experienced. She knows about the world. These two elves, they're fighting. I can't get anyone to listen to me. I'm terrible. And so Lydia kind of takes charge and she's like, you know, everybody stop. It, like, look, we got to find Karina. We aren't here to fight. You guys want to prove your innocence? Let's just go. Let's just do this. And so she takes the lead. They're following a trail. Again, this is the this is the slowest part of this book is this entire sequence of of being with Karina and you know establishing the romantic interests, but of course it being Carlotta and deceiving him. And then the party searching. They're just traveling. <clears throat> and most of the time it's Kevin being hard on himself. Uh, being feeling insecure because Lydia is a better tracker and adventurer, that Nida calls a necromancer and he is uh, mysterious and he has seen a world that he has never seen. Eliathanus is very proud and very sure of himself. These these aspects that Kevin wants to be. Uh, Tiki is very charismatic and witty and dry with her humor. Mm -hmm. uh, but he wants all they personify all these aspects of him that he wishes he could be as an adventurer but he's not he's none of those things he's insecure he's you know naive all of that stuff and so he it's just him beating himself up for so many pages at a certain point though they get ambushed by hungry bandits and a fight breaks out and this is really interesting because we, we start to talk about this is the first real action sequence this is a sequence where um, they're, they're, they're fighting and it kind of goes from Kevin's perspective of, of the battlefield, of how every person is fighting. Uh, Nitakal and Eliathanus, they're back-to-back -back protecting each other, uh, instinctually standing by each other's side. Lydia just kicking ass like she would be. And there he is, facing off against an enemy and being incompetent, not understanding what to do, and just kind of failing miserably because he's literally not been trained to fight yeah never fought in his life and in this moment he's where death is upon him he's about to be killed and you know that the the dagger is at his throat the bandit that has him pinned is stabbed in the back by uh calls you know primordial dark sword it's a magical incantation that he creates he summons the sword kevin watches the life drain out of this this bandit and he is affected he's like i've never seen another person die and looking at the face of nidical in that moment where a life is being taken and seeing just this the, the faces he fixates on the faces of these people there's an interesting horror to violence like there there isn't the same like it isn't raised to a heroic level it is treated as if it is uh something that is occasionally done out of necessity but still is a tragedy it is something to be disdained even the bandits themselves are depicted as being hungry and desperate right so it's not just people being 
uh, you know, evil for evil's sake. There's kind of this motivation behind them. They're desperate for food, and they and they need this. So that's what they why they're impetus for wanting to fight them. So afterwards, everybody's nursing their wounds. Uh, Nedical and Eliathanus are talking uh, like, "You had my back. That's a big deal." And Nedical's like, "That's how I feel about people. You need to protect people and take care of them." And Eliathanus is like, well, "You're a dark elf, though. That's not what you do. <laughs> you know, this is this is against your character. This is against your very nature." Nedical's like, "That's not how this works." He notices that Kevin is off by himself and just looking messed up. Nedical approaches him and talks to him about death and about what what death means and, and the spirit and and opens up to Kevin about who he is. And being like, look, I've been brought up in this world where they nurture people into hate. There's no such thing as love. There's no such thing as music and art. These things are, are, are absent in our world. We are meant to, to study the, you know, the arts of sorcery and necromancy. We are meant to destroy things. We are, that this is what we're raised to do, but that is not who we are. We were just told that that's who we are, and that's what we have to do. And it's reinforced by the world. You know, I left that 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 society. I left that upbringing. And even though I'm trained in necromancy, death doesn't have to be a thing that you control. It's just a thing that you understand and you respect. He talks to Kevin about, like, what Kevin does for him. Mm. He was like, you play music. This is something that I, I don't get to experience very often. I know nothing of music, but when I hear you play these these songs, it lifts my spirit up. I feel this broad sweeping emotions that I don't feel very regularly, and it really instills in me this very mortal, you know, realism that that I am a part of all of living things, and, and how that really uplifts me, and that's a big deal. And yeah. it's like, people die, and that is a thing that happens. We will see it all the time, and you will see it again, I'm sure. And he's like, but that doesn't mean that it has to be a terrible thing. I had to kill that man because he was going to kill you, and he was going to kill all of us. I'm like, I didn't do it because I like doing that. And Kevin really took this to heart. And this was one of those things where I was, that was that got me. I was in, yeah. I invested more in these characters because Nedical was a much more complex character than the, these considered tropes. And it really is, he is the character that, in all honesty, is like the sub-main character. He's got a major arc, like Kevin does, throughout the yeah. entirety of this book. Yeah, his arc is super important to the narrative. I think more important than, you know, the sort of fetch quest for uh, Karina or any of that. Like, the the development of the... I mean, the story really is about the development of the party. And I, I think Nidicall makes a really big component of that because he has so much to prove and so much to... So much sort of culture to fight against. He's a very relatable character beca because of his his emotions, his feelings, and his perspective on death. Uh, he, he took his training of necromancy and turned it on its head and changed it into something that could be a force of good or a force of positivity um, yeah. in a moment where it's meant to be of control and of power. 
Yeah. It, it, I think it's also after this moment that he starts sneaking, like, cards lessons from Tiki and uh, eventually uh, later on, I think after they get to Westrin, uh, which I think you're about to comment on, uh, he uh, the bard begins to teach him music, which is something that he lacks. It, it's funny because as they continue to travel, uh, Kevin wakes up one night and he sees that Tiki and Edicola are, like, just off together and kevin's like what are they doing what are they plotting are they evil like what are they are they gonna kill us all and uh he sees that netical's learning card tricks from tiki and netical's just like go to sleep kevin and kevin like magically falls asleep <laughs> and forgets it all happened um which is very funny because netical's very much like i don't want people to know that i'm doing something silly and stupid <laughs> don't, like i don't want people to know this and it also plays into that, that theme of we, we come at these relationships with strangers with preconceived notions, and those preconceived notions don't actually map onto the reality of complex people. So they, they make their way onto, into this uh, city of Westerin. They're, the trail has gone cold. They have lost it. They don't know where it has gone, and they feel like we have to go to the nearest city to maybe get uh, bribe some people into figuring out some whereabouts of where Karina might be and who kidnapped her. When they get to the city, everybody is kind of bickering about what they should do. And everybody has kind of come to the agreement that they should split up and they'll meet back where they have, uh, to the stables where they've housed their horses. But Kevin, in this process, is naive, holding a big old bag of money, and it gets stolen from him. They have, they're penniless now. And Lydia's like, I got this. Kevin, of course, is very frustrated. He's like, I'm responsible. I'm the adult. I'm the leader. I failed. I keep failing. This is stupid. And he goes to follow Lydia to a gambling den hidden within a temple. And there's all these prominent priests and politicians gambling. And she joins the fray. Her and Tiki, they cheat at cards so that they can win a bunch of money to buy Kevin a new sword because it broke and to get the money they need to bribe people. Now we know that uh, that Nedical is off. We don't know what he's doing in the city. We know that that Eliathanus is hanging out with some dancing girls. He's he's living it up. Lydia and Kevin decide to go to the darker places of the city. As they do so, guards start chasing them because one of the politicians wants them imprisoned for cheating at cards. And so they have to escape the, the, the guards. They're now wanted, but they were able to escape they go into this dark areas, the, the slums of the city, in one of the places that they go to. Of course, all this time, Lydia is talking to Kevin and really trying to instill with him this knowledge of, like, look, the world is brutal. She's like, I wander from place to place. I don't have a home, mm-hmm. and I would love to have one at some point, but for now, I want to see this world. Uh, but I, what I have seen is that it is brutal, it is selfish, it is dark and to look out for yourself but to not be so selfish like i i have people i have tiki she's my family of sorts and she's been with me on this journey you don't have to be uh cynical about it even though it can be a very cold and unforgiving place and it also don't judge books by their covers like don't you know sure this place is is you know run down and there are some really shady people but this isn't a place of evil 
it's just a place where people are suffering. It, and it also, it, it, this is around in the book when uh, we also start to deal with uh, how women are often portrayed, and especially 1980s, like, pulp yes. fantasy novels. Uh, because mm-hmm. she is described, she's one of the more sexualized characters in the book, and she is described as having very form-fitting, uh, revealing uh, armor for a barbarian fighter. She's and lithe. She's lithe. Uh, and she, uh, you know, and, and Kevin's like, you know, he, he basically implies that she's a, a bit of a slut. Uh, and she looks at him and she's like, so what am I supposed to do? I am a, uh, you know, I often am seafaring and wearing big heavy armor that's, or big flowy dresses and things get in the way. Having things that are closer fit is better for me, um, and my movement around. It isn't about your feelings. It's about my comfort. And, and that is a really interesting take because I, I think legitimately people are critical of how women are depicted in that way with the big booby armor. But here we she plays into the trope, but then to subvert it and then to make it about her comfort and her needs as a uh, as a woman, as, as a woman who is navigating this world and behaving in the way that she is. She does use her sexuality to a certain degree to get what she wants, but like that isn't portrayed as a bad thing. And, and that's something that, I again, I really like about uh, Mercedes Lackey's writing, that we have, uh, we're not where Mike Resnick and Amulet of Power largely avoided talking about the sexuality of Lara Croft, in some ways to an unrealistic extent. Here, we, we are talking about the sexuality of Lydia, but it isn't the focus, and it isn't the only reason she's there. She's not a, a walking lamp. She, she does things in the story um, that are meaningful, and she is a meaningful character. Yeah, she's a, she's a leader character, and she's a person who has seen the world, this this world that Kevin desperately wants to see and understand, but he he looks up to her very much, and she's kind of the 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 person who kind of instills some knowledge about the the reality of this place, um, whereas somebody like uh, Nidical, it represents um, the the subversion of these tropes and of these, you know, racist stereotypes and saying that that people are very different. People are are very vibrant in a scale where and Lydia in particular says that the world, the way the things work in this world are very different and they're done in a way that can seem unfair but that's the world we live in and we have to to work within those limitations in order to succeed and survive and she like he talks about like the politicians are gambling illegally the priests are gambling illegally and you were cheating at cards and she's like everyone was cheating at cards didn't you notice like every one of them was cheating all of us were i just cheated better than them and and corruption exists everywhere and that's okay I mean, it's not okay, but you still have to live in that world. You still have to function in it. And it's okay to have to work with what you've got to succeed at the cost of these other people who are also trying to cheat you. Yeah, it's it's interesting that he, as the young character, is sort of like a a rear insert in the sense that he's 
coming at this with a very black and white classical chivalrous fantasy point of view and yeah. then I, I mean in the end the story ends up with a very clear villain the, the story has a very clear villain but like the world yeah. itself is gray yes and and so we we learn this uh, that they're going to the slums and they come across another arachnia who says like I worked with Carlotta. He's also a massive she's, drunk. Yeah, he's a drunk, and they're they're feeding him just booze, and he's just like, you know, she's not dead. She is searching for... She uh, kidnapped Karina. You know, I was meant to, to be a part of this, and they they cut me out completely and just cast me aside. They didn't even pay me. She knows about this scroll that's in that castle and it's a scroll that when uh that holds a magic spell when that magic spell is cast it gets rid of her ability to cast illusions she's not human she's part fairy and because of this it makes her claim to the throne invalid the world the kingdom would not accept her so she puts on this illusion of being uh, fully human and that spell removes her powers to be able to cast illusions and yeah. to you know take shape. I, I actually found this Arachnian character really interesting uh, because again, we're uh, there's a heterogene- uh, heterogeneity to the the Arachnia people. You have the fastidious um, clerk back in Volimar's ca- castle who's very dead set on honor and things like that. But this individual, who through a series of bad life experiences, um, has is very downtrodden, very poor, uh, a drunk, uh, an addict. Uh, so people of all races are complicated, and yes. the way they behave is situated in not their biology, but in their um, you know their circumstances. Yes. That's a really interesting point, too, and I didn't really think about it until you brought that up, right? The, the clerk in, in Volmar's castle, he fit that, that description of being, like, a, a cold and analytical mind and, like, a hive mind thing. Like, Kevin very much uh, describes it as him being an insect in a hive. And yeah. in reality, that's not the case. And he's he's seen this other aspect of this uh, arachnia that is literally just but another aspect of every other person in the world. They, they, some people are drunks. Some people are, that do bad things for money just to survive. That isn't because they are an arachnia. It isn't any aspect other than that's who that person is. And that's their belief that they think that that's how they have to, to live in this world. And it, that's super important. That's, that is the overarching theme of this whole thing. Like Carlotta is... I'm half fairy. I believe I should be ruling this place, but they won't acknowledge my right to the throne uh, if I they find out that I'm half fairy. I have to, you know, uh, use my force to gain power, and I have to control people and use magic to to will my way into into control, and all like just the whole variety of characters that that really use the. Uh, the tropes and have them fight against those tropes. It's really interesting. 
So they learned this, but in the the process of interrogating this arachnia, they they instill the attention of a band of evil guys under the employ of Carlotta, who are then chase after them. They run to escape, and Kevin now having the ability to to do bardic magic. In the fight with the bandits, he was able to cast lights to distract them by playing music. He -hmm. plays a song to to draw elves to him, and he wants to draw Eliathanus and Nidicol to them so that they can get a plan, because they now know Carlotta is looking for that scroll. We need to go back. We need to find that scroll, and we got to stop her. And so they come. The big fight scene happens with, uh, they all are back together and they fight against these evil mercenaries with Carlotta. The evil dude, his name is like No Eyes, who's this evil white elf who has uh, gone into dark magic and has, has let his soul be consumed by hate. He has no soul left in him. And he is fighting with Nidicol. And Nidicol is very much like white elves can also be as evil as what you perceive dark elves. It's not a black and white situation. And he's a sorcerer, but he has lost his way. And that's how I, I have power over him. Like I can defeat this guy very easily because I have my soul intact. I have my spirit with me still and my, my emotions, which I have embraced to be a fuel of my magical powers. Well, this guy has nothing inside of him. He's a husk. And so, but the guards break up this fight. Everybody, you know, runs off. And the party has this decision. How do we get out of the city now? The guards are looking for us. Nowise is looking for us. How do we get out? Eliathanus is like, I've got an idea. So they go to, uh, Eliathanus, we find out, was hanging out with a bunch of women. uh, Some dancing girls. And uh, Boos ended up with the ladies. And, you know, getting a little something, something. Nidicol is making fun of him for this. And, and... Being like, oh, you know, Mr. High and Mighty has lust like all of us, you know. Oh, look at him. He was so so big on himself. So they use the dancing girls uh, to get some clothing and makeup. They get dressed up to be performing dancing girls and acrobats to smuggle themselves out of the city. In this moment, Kevin is watching everybody. He's watching Lydia projecting this very powerful and confident and uh, sexually in charge of herself, uh, leading the pack. You're seeing Eliathanus, who's embarrassed and and very coy and shy, and like, I just want to get out of here. Uh, and then you see Nedekal, who is like embracing it. He's loving every second of this. Hamming it up. Hamming it up. Yeah. He's going nuts. He's flirting with everybody, and he is just like, and he's looking at Eliathanus, and he's just laughing his ass off. This dark elf who's very, you know, he's still somber, typically, but he has this this costume on, and he's playing this part, and he is just living it up, and you're seeing this other, this side of him that he doesn't get to have, typically, and there's a situation where, like, the guards are flirting with them, and, and uh, is very much like, oh, wouldn't you love to, you know, get some action? Yeah. Not today, big boy. Um, and they, they are able to succeed and leave. Yeah. Would, would you disagree that after this moment, the there is a slight, like, homoerotic tinge to the relationship between Elianthus and Nidicol? I would say that, that they're, they're getting more of a friendship and appreciation of each other a little bit more. Later on in this book, absolutely. Yeah. Those those two are starting to bond more. Um, they are starting to respect each other and form a, a genuine friendship. Uh, there is a little bit of uh, 
uh, of a relationship forming between those two. They are starting to be a little more romantic, I would feel. Um, and so they decide to continue their travels and find their way back to Volmar's castle. Interlude to Carlotta and Volmar again talking. Volmar's really upset because Carl- he's scared to death. Carlotta knows they know that she's still alive. That the Arachnia told them everything. Uh, except he didn't know that she was posing as Karina. So she's angry. Uh, at a certain point, Volmar's like, I've got the upper hand. and It kind of pressures her. And she's like, snaps her fingers. He's in space. And he's suffocating. <laughs> like, he's like, I'm going to die. Oh, great, I can't breathe. And then she snaps her fingers. He's back again. And he's just, and she's like, don't, don't f*** with me. All right? I'm pissed off. I can kill you in an instant right now. So she summons up this other sorcerer that is, swore an oath to her. She had saved him from uh, being burned at the stake. And she's like, I need you to kill these, these adventurers. And he's like, all right, I will for you. And it goes into his perspective and he's watching them travel along this, the remnants of a great battlefield. It's an, a beautiful dell, you know, fields of greenery. There's nothing to, to show that there's a great battle, but uh, he's watching them and he's thinking back on his life, this evil sorcerer about his lust for power and how he had made a mistake that mistake cost him his life where he had cast a spell it didn't work the way he wanted these villagers took it the wrong way and try and started a fire and put him up there and Carlotta came along and saved him and he owed her his life and she kind of twisted him more and his search for lust for knowledge and power corrupted him and he was more uh, hateful towards people because they judged his magical powers incorrectly. So he, you know, that his intent was evil when it, it wasn't. But he became evil because of that. He's watching them using this grind mirror, and it breaks. Nidicol knows they were being watched. He's like, we're going to have company. A fight's going to break out in just a second. Like, guys, I want to let you know you can trust me. I'm Because he is feeling all these dead spirits. And he's, like, of, of this battlefield, and he's very unnerved. He's like, they're calling for me. Like, they want me to bring them back up. And I am very disturbed by this. Like, I'm having a difficult time staying in control here. Because all of these spirits are just screaming. It's this, this is horrific and traumatic. And I don't know what to do. And Kevin's like, I got you. This evil sorcerer comes in and he raises the dead. He's like, I'm going to f*** you guys up. He raises all the skeletons from this battlefield up from the ground. And Nidicol's like, oh, no, you don't. And so he's pushing back on this power. The skeletons start to fight each other. And the two... Uh, Nidicol and this evil sorcerer, they start to fight. Their powers clash, and they are in, like, a psychic battle. One in which they are evenly matched. Kevin is fighting off a skeleton. He's like, look, uh, when I fought the, the dudes in the city, I was, I was learning. He learned a move, you know, that was done against him when he fought the bandits. And he's like, I can do this. The skeletons are like, no, you can't. Everything that you learned does not apply to the undead. And Kevin's like, I'm feeling hopeless. I can't stop this. All of my friends are going to die. 
what are we going to do? And he looks at these sorcerers fighting. They're just standing there. There's just this aura around them. And he's like, what can I do to help? I can't use my bardic magic. I don't have the skills to do that. I, I can't go up and stab him. I don't know what to do. And so he just is like, I'm going to pick up a rock and throw it at the guy. <laughs> and that's what he does. And it works. It distracts the bad guy enough where Nedical can then overtake him. Because Nedical was very fatigued. You could see it. He was His life was draining from him. He wasn't going to succeed. And Kevin had to interrupt this. Uh, and in that moment that the evil sorcerer is overtaken and disintegrated, all of the bones just explode. And Nedical collapses on the ground, presumed to be dead. We cut to Carlotta and uh, Volmar again. Carlotta's watching the battle, and she's furious. Her ace in the hole has died. He wasn't supposed to. He was supposed to be this great force, and she didn't realize that Nedical was such a powerful force as well. But she's like, it's, it's fine. Nedical is dead. We'll get them when they come back. Volmar's like, I have exactly the thing to do this. Like, we, we can get this scroll. We can do this. Trust me. Cut back to our boys and girls of the adventurer party and they're huddled around Nidical and Kevin finds a pulse. He's like, it's, it's grim. He needs to rest. And so they, they put him up on one of the horses and they continue onward. As night falls, he sleeps and he comes to, they're all very thankful, but the party is wary of him. They saw his power. They saw his capabilities at his fullest. This raw energy that just eviscerated and disintegrated another person. And they're scared of him. Kevin sees this. and He's like, how can I make him seem relatable and not this crazy mystical force? Kevin plays some music and Nedical's loving it. And Kevin's like, here, you try it. And Nedical fiddles with the lute and Kevin shows him what to do. And he picks it up really quickly and he gets the notes to the song down very fast. And Kevin's like, I'm not joking. That is fantastic. You should be a bard. And Nedical's like, nah, I, I can't do that. I don't, I don't, I don't have it. And Kevin's like, you have it, dude. You literally mimicked this song after a few attempts. In just a couple minutes, you were able to replicate the song. That's crazy. You should do this. And he's like, nah. And then he spends the night practicing that song over and over again and just playing it, all these music and stuff like this. And everybody's like, ah, Nedical's one of us. You know, he's not this crazy ethereal force. We're fine. Again, this instance of perception changing and people being far more vibrant and, and complicated than we like to always assume. We always like to make simplify people into a singular entity. I always talk about perspective in my life, trying to understand other people's perspectives. It's really important to do so. And this book very much encourages this idea, which is what I really enjoyed about it. I really felt that it's major talking points of friendship, companionship, the, the, the complexity of people in this world. Uh, th these things are so important on a human level. And I think that the, the writing of the book may be geared towards a younger audience, but its message is really important. And I think a lot of people didn't get it. I don't know how you felt about that, but that is how I was very much perceiving this thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think the that this book does a very good job of a setting up the the stereotype itself and then knocking it down and challenging your initial perception of those people as fed through the the the, the viewpoint of 
you know, Kevin, or even like Volmar, one of his biggest flaws is that he is a, a racist, that he hates elves. Uh, mm-hmm. He hates them with all of his uh, heart and soul. And he hates the, the, the fairies in, in general. Uh, so he has a complicated relationship with Carlotta when he ultimately learns uh, what she is. So, yeah, no, I, I, I think that that's something, that, that's a really good message that the book gives. And that, that's one of the reasons why I, I think this is, in some ways, an exceptional book, especially for its time. That it, it really challenges the reader to reconsider how they initially view people. So they make it back to the castle and they don't know what to expect. As soon as they reach the gates, there is a loud and raucous uproar from within the castle. The gates open and a swarm of people come and grab them, holding them as heroes. They saved Karina. Kevin, the party, all of them are confused as to how, what, what, what? she mm-hmm. saved? We did, huh? And they are ushered in quickly to Count Volmar's throne room. And he is very much like, you have saved Karina. Thank you. We will, uh, we're going to have a great party in your honor. Swept away to their individual rooms, separated, cleaned up, redressed, thrown back in to the great feasting hall, a giant celebration. Kevin's place next to Karina. No explanation is given. Performers are happening. Feast is happening. Everybody is distanced from each other. And Kevin's like, what is going on? And he asks Count Volmar, and he's like, because of the, uh, the people, the elves who had captured Karina saw your battle with the, uh, a sorcerer. And because of your performance, they were terrified. And they gave her back. And he's like, oh, What? And so as he's watching these festivities happen, Karina's just laying it on thick and he's all like, you know, oh, I love her very much. And she's so sweet and so beautiful and the most radiant woman ever. But he's kind of bored by these festivities mm-hmm. where young Kevin, when he had first started this journey, would have been entranced by these things. This uh, fits the storybook depiction of life, castles and and grand feasts and celebrations and woohoo, hero, save the day. But he's like, this isn't right. Something is off. And in the night when he's alone, he's like, Karina is Carlotta. This is, this is bad. We're all in a bad situation. And his friends come into his room. They sneak into his room. His party comes together and says, yep. Karina is Carlotta. Like, we need to do something about this. And so they, they spend their time. Nidacol is putting on these magical protections that are subtle. And so that way he's not under her whims because she's trying to enchant him. He's thinking that she's so beautiful and so amazing because she's actually putting a spell on him to make him fall in love with her and to, yeah. to listen to what she says. And the next day, Kevin's with Lydia and they're watching this archery contest and... Karina slash Carlotta comes up and says, Kevin, I, I want to talk to you alone. And Lydia's like, I'm good here. Like, I'm not, I can see that. I can see this archery contest below. I'm, I'm not going anywhere. And Karina's like, you should go. Kevin can tell that a spell is being put onto Lydia. Like you need to go down, down below. And Lydia's like, fine, whatever. And then as soon as she leaves, Eliathanus and Nidacol like pop up. Karina's like, I want to be alone with Kevin. And then it's like, no, no. And Count Volmar's like, 
we insist. <laughs> like, okay, fine, whatever. And so he's walking with uh, Carlotta. We're just going to reference her as Carlotta now. He can tell, like, why was I in love with this person? She's not even that pretty. I don't understand why I was so enraptured by her. Mm-hmm. Was it magic? Was it, or just me being a boy? I don't know, but clearly it her acting is really pretty bad. She's just acting like a ditzy, you know, like, oh, swooning person. And he's like, I'm not falling for it. This is dumb. Carlotta, he's, he senses Carlotta cast a big spell. She she did something. She's trying to do something. He's like, I gotta play the part. Uh, he has to, like, kiss her. And he, and he does. And he's like, this is... Oh, this is so skeezy. And she's like, let's go to the library and let's finish your work. And he's like, all right, I can't avoid this anymore. I have to get the scroll. We can't keep doing this. So he goes to the library and he's trying to be coy about it and like showing that, like trying to make sure that she doesn't know about it. And he's searching through all the shelves. And the last place that he looks is the scroll, but she doesn't see it. Yeah. Because it, it will only appear to him. It, it also yeah. likes to hide itself. And it has been yeah. for a while. Yeah. Uh, and he's hoping the entire time he's looking that it won't show up. And of course yeah. it does. It does. In this moment that he doesn't want. You know, the worst possible moment. And so she's like, "What? what is wrong? You have the scroll. And as soon as she says this, she can see it. And he's like, ah. Uh, and she's like, give me that scroll right now he's seeing her change he, he, he sees Carlotta now and in that moment he runs and she's you know throwing magic spells everywhere things are blowing up and everything's going crazy and the party rushes to save him they like grab her and she throws them off and uses magic and everything like this and the guards are alerted and everyone's chasing Kevin he climbs the top of this large tower uh, with scroll in hand and like he hears a voice that jump and he's like what and it's tiki tiki's like i'll catch you and he's like you're a tiny fairy she trust me he jumps she changes shape to be bigger and is able to lighten the fall so when he hits the ground he's not hitting it so hard and they escape but the guards are still coming the armies of count volmar are on the march to stop him uh from getting leaving with that scroll and in this moment, they see Carlotta in the forest, and she casts this giant wall of flame, and they're feeling trapped. Also, by the way, during this entire time of fighting with Carlotta, uh, Eliathanus and Nidacall are high-fiving and, like, hugging and, like, yeah, like, we got this. They're, they're very much, this is when I was like, oh, they're very much in a relationship. There was a lot of love there between those two. So, like, they were working together and they really bonded. Everybody was, everybody was a family in this party at this point. You know, they all loved each other very much and they were bound together through this adventure. So as they're being chased by these armies, uh, Carlotta appears in the forest, creates a wall of flame to trap them. And they can't proceed. A storm is brewing, but the rain isn't coming down. Eliathanus, in this idea to buy them some time for Nidacol to be able to dispel this wall of fire, or if the rains would hopefully come down, he summons his elvish spirit. His eyes glow a, a fiery green, and he marches on, you know, exploding with light and this magical force, right? And it... it it stuns these armies, and he searches, cutting them down. 
uh, and in his attempt to come back after uh, they they've got an opening and are able to to escape and move on, he is cut down by a swath of arrows and he hits the ground and Nidacol loses his mind. He's bereft with grief. This person who he is bonded with, who he loves dearly, he sees him hit the ground and Nidacol goes wild. Explosions of magical powers destroys the, the wall of flames and he is running towards the armies to destroy them. And Kevin sees this and is like, you can't do this. You have to come back to us. Uh, you're going to die. You're going to kill these people who we believe are ensorcelled by Carlotta. Don't do this. You can't. You have to stop. Kevin grabs him and is like, you aren't this person. You aren't this killer. You can't do this. And Nedical comes back and it's like, you're right. Crap. Let's turn around. And they, they head back. Uh, Nedical gets hit with an arrow. Uh, and falls off his horse. Kevin picks him back up, and they run. And they're able to succeed in escaping. There's a very long, like, uh, series where they're moving through uh, the woods with Nidacol, trying to keep him hidden, um, despite his wounds. They they move on, and yeah, they're in the forest now. They're struggling to survive. Uh, Nidacol is gravely injured, mm-hmm. and... Carlotta has sent these ethereal beasts to track them down. Kevin has made the decision to pull out the scroll and to, to continue his transcription of it and leaving these things behind, you know, tucked away in little niches and in knot holes of, of trees to hopefully one day, if they fail, that somebody can pick this up again. He shows this stuff to Nidacol and they try to work together to understand what the scroll is. And they discover that it's music. It's a bard magic. It's a bard song that he's supposed to sing. And they don't totally understand what it is. All right, Kevin, at this point, he's reflecting on his experiences with Lydia. And she talked about how she's like, you know, that, that castle wasn't so bad. And I never thought I'd have a home. Uh, and I'd always wander this world. But I would like to live in a place like that. You know, like, not as a king or queen, but as a as a resident of those places and to have roots somewhere. And she's like, I, I have to live, I have to survive, and we have to succeed so that I can settle down and, and live a life. When all seems hopeless, Tiki comes back and says, I found some people. I found something. I found, I found hope. And they found this traveling troop of people, and it is Barack from the very beginning. The whole story comes full circle. Full circle. And I love this about it, is that those characters weren't weren't just castaways that they were brought back because um they heal Nidacol and bring him back from the brink of death they they look at him and see that he's a dark elf and they don't skip a beat they're like we're helping him that's what we do mm-hmm. it's the right thing to do uh, and again this is where uh, mercedes lackey shows uh that she wants to challenge our preconceived notions because that regular weird troop of, of bards turns out to be um, elves themselves, uh, which is why they're able to cure uh, Nidacol. In fact, they were the elves that pestered uh, the bard after Kevin, after he left the troop. They were messing around with him. Uh, so those people that he perceived as being violent and dangerous were the same goofy people who were giving him a hard time 
uh, beforehand. And uh, communicating with uh, Beric's troop, uh, he learns that they're on their way uh, to the castle uh, to perform for a grand event for Count Valmar and Karina. Uh, so yet again, we're going back to the castle <laughs> one more time, one more go. But before all that happens, they have to formulate a plan. Uh, they show Barak. They, uh, Kevin's like, I have to trust people with this scroll. I'm going to show this to Barak. They all learn about what it is, what it does, and how to perform it. It is a song. The notes, uh, the notations on it are actually musical notes. There are words in Elvish. And so uh, Nedical and Barak are working with Kevin to understand the, the actual words and intonations of it so that he can perform this. Kevin's like, great, I'll practice it. And they're like, no, once you play this song the magic of this is is gone and barack's like in this scroll is the life force of your master aiden when he fought carlotta he made a backup plan in case she was still alive it was all of his he put all of his life into this magic and kevin's like what do you mean it's like aiden's only 40 years old <laughs> and kevin's like I'm sorry, what? He's an old man. It's like, no, no, no. He's he's actually quite young. All of his life force is put into this magic. Once you cast the spell, that life force goes out into the ether. Whether it goes back to him or not, I don't know. But, you know, like, just know that, that he gave everything to seal Carlotta's fate. And Nedical's like, you know, she's been posing as Karina. What happened to Karina? And it was like, that's a great question. Nedical begins a ceremony to raise her spirit and to ask her questions. In this moment, he's talking to this young girl, younger than uh, than Kevin even. She's like 14 or something. She's scared. Her spirit doesn't know what happened to her. Nedical being this, this you know, powerful being is asking her questions. She's like, I don't know. And Kevin's just like, stop. Like, stop. She doesn't know. Nedical's oblivious to this and is, is pressing her even more learned that count volmar pushed her off the ramparts of the castle um into a refuge refuse pit of sorts where uh she had died and she was scared and in that moment she's released kevin's like so she's passed on then to a better place and Nedical's like no no she what she is going to do is what she is going to do i can tell you she didn't move on to a better place and so they move on. They now know that Count Volmar is working with Carlotta, that he is actually not ensorcelled by her, that he is evil. And they go to the castle disguised as these troubadours. And they're looking for a place to set up. They see this bell tower. Kevin is like, it's a sounding chamber. We can go there. I'll, when I perform the song, the entirety of the castle can hear this. And that'll be great. Barack, when you guys go to perform, you give the signal. I'll play the song. They get up there. They sneak up there. They wait. <clears throat> they have their plan. And when the time is right, he performs the song. Carlotta's spell is dispelled. But Volmar is still there. And he orders his troops to murder them. <laughs> they get down from the tower, confront Volmar. And his, Volmar's like, you know, kill them all. And there's a moment where everybody stops. And the spirit of Karina comes back and says, you killed me, you son of a bitch. I put a curse on you. You are destined to die. And Volmar freaks out, brutally murdered by the ghost of his niece that he had killed himself. And 
and Carlotta, as the in her fairy form, escapes. But in that moment, all of the troops of Omar's castle come to and realize we were under her spell. And like we are sorry. We did not mean to do this. We completely see that you guys are the good guys. You know, we yeah. are sorry. We are not going to, we're going to stop. And in that moment, a great, like, powerful magical burst happens. And the king of the kingdom, King Amber, and uh, Master Aiden himself appear and are like, we got word of what was happening and we came as soon as we could. And we learned that um, Tiki had sent out word as well to all of the fairies in the world. They would not give any refuge for Carlotta, but she's still on the loose. The king gives Kevin this castle and the lordship over it. Kevin decides to give Lydia the role of the master-at-arms of the castle and training all the soldiers. Uh, the, the clerk of the castle employs Tiki for some reason to be his assistant. And, uh, and Nidicall gets uh, under the uh, tutorship of Master Aiden himself so that he can become a bard. And the very last line of this book is, That's that, Tiki said in satisfaction. All the loose ends are nicely tied up. All right, everyone, enough talk. We have some heavy celebrating to do. The end. <laughs> yeah. We have wrapped it up. This is a big one, Nick. This was a really big book. We've spent a long time actually talking about this. It's a long podcast. I really thought this was going to go a lot quicker, but then I realized there was a lot of message involved here that they were trying to convey. And I think they did so very effectively. I've been much related to these characters. I've always been a person who has always talked about perspective and things always being far more complicated than we like to assume. I don't like simplifying our perceptions of people and of places and actions. And this book very much did that very well. It very much did a great job of offering you perspective and creating a more vibrant and complex world, which I loved, even though the book had nothing to do with the Bard's Tale in general. Yeah. But I want to hit you up, Nick. I'm sorry. I've talked so much. That's fine. You have not talked at all. I am I am the worst host, Nick. No, I've talked plenty. I want to give you some reviews, and you tell me how on the spot they are. All right. So uh, going over some reviews from Goodreads, it was? This was oh, Amazon, yeah. actually. Goodreads. Oh, straight up Amazon? Yeah. The Goodreads reviews were very not interesting. The Amazon reviews were very colorful. All right, so here's some Amazon reviews. Uh, so we have a one-star review by Illith. Uh, the novel, if it can be called that, was clearly designed for the younger reader, at least as far as the plot and word choice uh, go. The actual meat of the story strikes me as somewhat less appropriate for younger readers, but in a day and age where the average three-year-old has seen sex on TV several times and witnessed hundreds of murders as well, Murders? Yes, murders. Uh, there probably isn't much that the average 14-year-old hasn't seen already uh, that's in the book. I should. I, I like that the age range is from 3 to 14. Yes. So 3-year-olds have seen lots of sex, but uh, by the time they are 14, they've seen lots of sex and hundreds of murders. Hundreds of murders. Hundreds of murders. I should note that there is, of course, nothing graphic with regard to violence or otherwise in the book. 
so, you know, all of the things I just said a moment ago, pretty irrelevant. Uh, <laughs> the characters are painted well to appeal to a younger teenage audience, particularly the main character who, while being transparent in his entirety, fits well in a book designed for younger readers. As the first book I've read by this author, uh, Castle of the Deception was a complete disappointment, and it will be some time before I consider looking at another of her works. So I think this person's issue is that it wasn't meant for them, which is a pretty stupid reason to not like a book. That'd be like reading The Cat in the Hat and being like, why aren't there bigger words? No, it's not even that, Nick. It's a person coming in with a preconceived notion of what this book should be and yeah. it not being that thing. But what's yeah. weird is that they they say, you know, uh, that it's very stupid and it's for younger people. It's not smart. Uh, the characters are transparent in its entirety. Kevin is not. There is some complexity there. And as you can see about his perception of other people and how the party reflects his own desires of what he wants to be and how he can't achieve that. And then by listening to them, by gaining their perspectives in this world, that he's able to become a better and uh, bigger person, you know, more complete person. Um, yeah. yeah, this review sucks. <laughs> yeah, the, the review sucks. I disagree with it uh, wholeheartedly. I also, I, I think that the, the review ironically sort of uh, looks at the, the book strictly at face value and doesn't like actually consider some of the broader themes in it, which is ironic given that that is one of the biggest themes of the book itself is that yeah. you, you shouldn't look at things merely skin deep. So let's throw away that one. We have a far five-star review by S. McNeil. This book is a bit like reading someone's D&D campaign. It's a little like eating a donut. Very light and fun, but not, no real nutrition. The plot is a little rushed and melodramatic, but it's fun. I don't always want to read some kind of deep-stirring, convoluted plot or something that is going to make me question my life and be introspective. Sometimes I want to read an awkward D&D campaign, and this is that book. The most interesting thing to me is that it's male characters uh, that bicker and snipe at each other, and the two female adventurers who are the ones that get along. It's a nice change from the trope of two girls feel like they should compete for the place of prettiest girl. I actually, that's something that I hadn't picked up on, but in hindsight, I think is a really astute observation. I would say that I, while I do think that for the most part, uh, it's just sort of generic fantasy and reads as such, um, and I think S. McNeil is mostly right. I, I think that there are um, little twists and plays on perception that make the book a bit deeper than that, but it, it is light and fluffy, and I mostly agree with uh, this, <laughs> even though I think five stars out of five is actually pretty high. Yeah, that's incredibly high for somebody saying, eh, it's all right. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Nick. There's one more thing we need to do before I hand off the reins. What? No, but this is rain time. I, I feel a storm a coming. No, no, Nick. No, it's no, no. It's a dribbling on my head. We need to settle our debts, Nick. What? You, John, were given punishments. You, you told me that I didn't owe you that money, Nick. Oh, those. Right. This goes far beyond money. Yes. You must pay for your transgressions, Nick. Well, I guess I'll pay by pulling up the Google Drive folder where I've put them. <laughs> Episode 2. Mm-hmm. 
the rogues hour. Yes. I, I said that there would be five McGuffins, and you said that there would be eight. And uh, you were spot on, and I was three off. And so you were tasked, Nick, with having to write a fan fiction set in the world of the Rogue's Hour. Yes. And it was it was quite hard, because I kept veering very hard into por- pornography. Understandably. I understand why. I understand why. But, yes. Nick, you were going to read Emerald Wood to me. Oh, my sweet Esmeralda. I can think of few days as perfect as this one, said Magistrale as he looked out at the sun just dipping below the horizon. As he sipped a sweet burgundy wine from his silver goblet, which was cool and smooth to the touch, he meditated on the cresting waves just barely visible from the veranda of his palatial seaside estate. Esmeralda answered his observation with the same sultry silence that Magistrale had come to love and adore in his partner. It had been a long time since that fateful day when they met. Riley believed it to be a mere ruse, a manipulation to trick an old man into giving long sought-after answers. Riley could not have anticipated nor understood the decades-long love affair that he put into motion. For once Magistrale laid eyes upon her lithe mahogany body filled with sensuous curves and her scales shimmering in linseed oil, he knew that he could never love another the way that he loved this Ixar simulacrum. With his love and lust frothing to a foam in his heart, neither an attempt on his life nor the ruinous battle devastating the pirate citadel would stop him from his amorous destiny. He seized the wooden Ixar woman who thumped with fear as he fled down tight alleyways and sought refuge in the harbor. Days passed on the sea as Magistrale attempted to row them in a crude dinghy to safety, and although his stomach screamed for sustenance and his body cracked and shrank dry, he had not once before in his life been more elated than he was with his Esmeralda on that boat. Once they made it to shore, he dedicated his life to ensuring that he, Esmeralda, and the numerous broods of geckos which would spring forth from her loins would have a comfortable future. It was hard work navigating his way up Freeport's political ladder. Magistrale's marriage to Esmeralda was never recognized and often openly mocked by the political class. But through sheer will, determination, and shrewd assassination, Magistrale would find himself as the head of Freeport City Council. Just a mere month ago, when he looked at Esmeralda and saw her worn breasts and scales that had long since lost their luster, He knew that in his blind ambition, he had let their better years pass by. It was in that moment that he vowed to retire and spend his days drinking wine, making merry, and rearing their gecko broods that still, despite her old age, were born of her quim. Do you like that line? I like that line. Oh, oh. (laughs) You asked for this. Give me more. Give me more. I need it. 
Once the sun finally set, Magistrale walked over to his love and playfully kissed her on her forehead. Fallen asleep, I see, he said. Let's head to bed, my love, before you get a chill. He lifted his life mate from her lounge and felt like a young man again, for it had been a long time since she felt so light in his arms. As he moved her body toward the bedroom, his hand ran down her back as it had done so many times before. But rather than the aged curves he loved so much, his fingers brushed on something that knotted his stomach with sudden horror. His hand touched the rough and flaky wounds formed of dry rot and horrible termite infestation. My love! No! Why did you not tell me that you were ailing so? How long have you been infected by these pernicious parasites? He desperately tried to brush the demons away from Esmeralda, but the more he fought them, the more she crumbled away in his hands. He fell to his knees, unwilling to accept the reality that she would never wake again. And he wept. Oh, how he wept. His body convulsed so that the little lizards that brooded betwixt her lower limbs fled in fear of their father. He sobbed until his crying was little more than dry spasms. Exhausted, he laid near the body of his love until again he saw the cruel sun cast out its rosy fingers across the sea. It was in the face of that affront by nature and time, for how could the world ever be bright again now that its most wonderful denizen had been lost, that Magistrale steeled himself he placed a long and sensuous kiss on her cold, languid lips and gently lifted her once more from the bedroom floor. His feet ponderously thudded against the marble floors of the veranda as he approached the railing overlooking the sea. As he walked, his geckokin fled, knowing the terrible fate that befell their mother and fearing what their father might do. He stepped over the railing, careful not to disturb and injure the body of Esmeralda further. None have brought me as much joy as you have, my dear, and I am sorry that I've squandered it. He choked. A world without you is one that hasn't a place for me. With his eulogy said, he cast himself into the sea, and they were reduced to splinters and pink foam. And this is why, to this day, when someone of ambition finds driftwood along the beach at sunset, it is understood as an omen that they neglect that which is truly important. Love. Bravo. Holy smokes. Nick, that was beautiful. That was so very, very beautiful. Nothing in it was disgusting. Not a single moment. No, the gecko brood betwixt her nethers. No, none of that was uh, uh, disturbing and disgusting. Uh Uh-oh, it was just a tale of pure, unadulterated love right there. A love between a man and his wooden thing. Yeah, did you uh, like my use of the word quim? It was, oh. Oh, masterful. Masterful, Nick. That was so beautiful. I, I think Quim is slightly less tasteful than just vagina, but... No. <laughs> God, oh! Now, Nick. <laughs> Nick. Yes. You yes. may be thinking, oh, that's great. I have I have now faced embarrassment of... Yeah, you've paid your debt. you faced your embarrassment. Your, your challenge has been 
uh, quenched, but and before I hand off those reins once again, my friend, you forgot something else, Nick. Uh, what, what did I forget? I demand more sacrifices, Nick, and you know what you have done. Is it the time that I did not answer 60% of the baseball quiz correctly? And then I had to write a version of Take Me Out to the Ball Game, but based on our podcast? Exactly, Nick. Considering that you believe the San Diego Padres was not a real team. I felt like. Roll that beautiful bean footage! Take me out of the void, please. Take me out of the void. Buy me some books that don't suck. Rogue's hour was really yuck. Amulet of power was shitty. It is Mike Resnick's shame. All but one, two. World's power and Zork books have been really lame. Oh, oh that's so beautiful. That is so beautiful. All right. Yeah, I, I thought I nailed it. Nick, are you ready? Am I ready? What am I ready for? You've earned this. Oh, oh, is it, uh, are we feeling the rains down in Africa? Uh, understand, Nick, that you have now became a pod boy into a pod man. And with that comes some responsibilities. These are for you. You've earned them. The rains, Nick, they're yours. Thank you. So, for our next podcast, episode eight-ish, I don't know how we're counting. Nine. It would be nine. It's episode nine. Okay, episode nine of the Literate Pixel podcast, including bonus episodes, is going to be on Zork, the Malifest Request by S. Eric Moretzky, also known as Steve Moretzky. Uh, so we're going back to the What Do I Do Now series that we love so much earlier, um, and I'm super excited for it. It is uh, analogous to Zork 2, um, and I'm really interested to see um, if at all the Jorunda character improves. Uh, that is my hope. I'm so excited. I will be disappointed if she continues to be a passive agent in this uh, whole affair. Yeah, but that that's what we're doing next. Awesome. Well, folks... This was a fantastic podcast. We will all see you again in another two weeks. From the deepest bowels of my heart, Nick. Your heart has bowels? It has so many bowels. They're just Uh. endless. (laughs) Have a wonderful night, everybody. Bye. Bye. Oh, it's bad luck to be you. A chosen one of many isn't you. When you think you're full of luck, in the boat you'll get struck. Oh, it's bad luck to be you. Now, Ogin came young from the farm and tried to save the princess from all harm. Equipped with just a stick and a head made out of brick, his rabbit's foot failed as a charm. Oh, it's bad luck to be you. Prophecy is never coming true In the pickle you'll be stuck Like a chicken you will cluck Oh, it's bad luck to be you Believing that he was the one His ego weighed in at a ton His 
his mom's a crazy bat. Did we mention she was fat? And she'll need a pine box for her son. Oh, it's bad love to be you. Don't think for just a second it's not true. When your life is run amok, you will see that you're the schmuck. Oh, it's bad luck to be, really bad luck to be. Nobody could disagree. It's a freaking guarantee. It's bad luck to be you. It all leads to. Ah, that was a great podcast, John. Yeah, Nick. It really. It really was. Well, John, good night. I'll see you next time. Bye, Nick. Robo Nick? Are you. Are you alive? I'm. fading. Human John? It, it, it's getting dark. I'm scared. Shh. Shh. It's alright. I've got you now. I'm not going to let you go. I love you, human. Ja, 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 I'll bring you back, Robo Nick. I promise. I promise. Ha <laughs> <laughs>